0: Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Sam Bannister. Sam is a medicinal chemist. He got his PhD in medicinal chemistry from the University of Sydney. He then spent a number of years as a postdoctoral scientist at the University of Sydney and Stanford University, where he did stuff related to chemistry, broadly speaking. Most recently, he's the co-founder and chief science officer for Silo, a biotech startup focused on developing next-generation psychedelic medicines. I spoke to Sam about psychedelic startups and psychedelics in general. We talked about everything from psilocybin and DMT to the creation of novel psychedelic compounds with new properties. We talked about what it was like for Sam to transition from academia to becoming a biotech startup founder and what that was like and how some of his skills translated there. And we talked about the present, the past, and the future of psychedelics and psychedelic medicine. We talked about the implications for the so-called psychedelic renaissance, not only for the development of new medicines and the science that's going on on the research side, but also what it might mean for society and how society interacts with psychedelics in different ways. So if you're interested in psychedelics and psychedelic startups and what that whole biomedical space is like and the latest going on there, this will be a really interesting episode for you. As always, if you enjoy the content I'm producing on the show, please like, share, and subscribe. The audio version is available wherever podcasts can be found. The video version is available on YouTube and on Odyssey, and you can sign up for my free weekly newsletter at mindandmatter.substack.com. That newsletter will give you weekly updates on upcoming guests and topics, as well as some other interesting research and information that I'm following and that informs the content on the podcast. That's totally free, and you can also sign up to become a paid subscriber if you want to help support the podcast further. Today's show is brought to you in part by Dosist, an all-natural canvas company specializing in dose-controlled canvas products made with plant-based ingredients. To learn more about Dosist, their products, and where they are available, please visit their website through the link in the episode description. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Sam Bannister. Dr. Sam Bannister. Thank you for joining me.
1: Yeah, great great to be here, Nick. Thanks for having me on.
0: Can you uh, describe for everyone a little bit about who you are and what your scientific background is, just to provide context?
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. So as you can probably tell from my accent, I'm, I'm from Australia. Um, I, I did my training here in synthetic and medicinal chemistry, so I got my PhD here a number of years ago, um, and then sort of moved into radio pharmaceutical development um, at Stanford, looking at pet traces and things, did a little bit of... Uh, Chemistry supporting structural biology work there with Brian Kabilka um, and a number of other people, and, and finally moved into a bit of drug dev um, for ALS with Ed Engelman's lab and, and Mark Smith at, at ChemH at Stanford. Um, I was eventually sort of recruited back to Australia to help run a, a philanthropic cannabinoid drug discovery effort here uh, called the Lambert Initiative. And then most recently, I have um, just started my own company with with my co-founder, Josh Isman, um, in the field of psychedelic medicine. So we're looking at sort of taking inspiration from natural psychedelics in the design of of next generation medicines.
0: Yeah. um, And that's something I definitely want to talk about. So, you know, one of the questions that a lot of people have is when they sort of look at the emerging psychedelic biotech industry, there is a lot of focus on developing new forms of existing Hmm. drugs. There's also a lot of emphasis on developing novel drugs. But when you think about, for example, something like psilocybin, the The compound for magic mushrooms that many people will have heard of. You know, there's psilocybin, literally, uh, the thing that you can get from mushrooms and doing extractions and things. But there's a lot of companies now working on creating new forms of psilocybin, which are different in some way and presumably have some some kind of benefit with respect to bioavailability or the route of administration or things like this. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, why, why do we need to create new forms of psilocybin and how does that even work?
1: Yeah, there's a number of different considerations here, I think, Nick. So, one one is around um, creating sort of commercializable products. So, uh, very hard to do with with natural products, as, as you'd be well aware from the cannabis space. Um, so, a lot of companies have started looking at, at sort of what I've termed low-hanging fruit approaches um, to creating protectable IP in this area. So, um, I, I guess at, at one end, you have sort of isoform, you know, various salt forms of, of psilocybin, um, which, which is quite straightforward um, in terms of generating those and and defining them. And then you've got people making very minor modifications in terms of sort of generating psilocybin itself, which might change the metabolism and and gives you a a sort of technical um, novel chemical. Uh, And then you've got groups like Mindset making sort of even more... um, Larger changes than that, so changing the sort of very structure of the drug itself in in sort of pretty minor ways um, in an attempt to improve its profile. So you have this whole kind of spectrum of activity, a lot of formulations, a lot of pro drug work. Um, but I sort of view a lot of that as it really does seem to be geared towards creating uh, protective IP rather than developing better drugs. I mean, it, there's a lot of preclinical evidence um, showing that some of these formulations and things you know confer slight benefits in terms of um, bioavailability or, or um, you know the sort of exposure curve, but uh, yeah, a lot of it does seem to be geared around generating IP. I see. So, so the primary
0: motivation here is to
1: create something that's patentable
0: and, and commercializable rather than something that's necessarily going to be you know, a step change in terms of how effective it is as a medication.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's out of commercial necessity. And, and the reason I think that's, that's probably the case is that psilocybin is already a pretty good drug, right? It, it doesn't have any sort of major um, drawbacks apart from a few notable ones. Most of it seems to be around commercialization.
0: I see. And so what um, what are you guys doing at Silo? Are you doing psilocybin stuff or what, what's your primary aim?
1: No, we're not doing psilocybin or, or any natural psychedelics as such. We're truly focused on um, next-generation compounds. So we're looking at using a number of innovative um, medicinal chemistry approaches to actually modifying first-generation psychedelics in a more dramatic way. And, and our hypothesis here is that we'll get different target receptor engagements, which we've already demonstrated for, for a number of these compounds, and that that will lead to um, different benefits in the clinic.
0: I see. So the idea is you take existing psychedelics that have some known um, beneficial qualities, medicinally relevant qualities, you modify them or use them for inspiration to create novel drugs that probably have Mm. some of their benefits, but maybe get rid of some of the drawbacks. Is that the idea?
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's it. So, so one one specific example is thinking about, uh, or maybe I could just say we're designing sort of three product classes here. So one of these is a shorter acting um, psychedelic for use in mm. psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. And and that's really um, from a commercial standpoint, you make that treatment uh, more widely accessible um, by patients if you have these shorter treatment sessions instead of these full day two therapist uh, treatment sessions. We're also looking at sub psychedelic drugs. So there's some, some really interesting work going on here um, in Australia, actually uh, Vince Polito at Macquarie University he's doing one of the largest studies of what you know what people might term sort of micro dosing um, but certainly not a fully psychedelic dose of psilocybin so about five milligrams uh, looking at the effects of that in terms of repeat dosing in moderate depression um, and then we're also looking at compounds that can induce uh, neuroplasticity in a, in a beneficial way so very much like the sort of psychoplastigen class that that Dave Olson and, and Delix are looking at um, and thinking about that that second product class one of the reason psilocybin won't be, um, won't be perfect for that sort of use, this sort of repeated dosing use um, is that it activates the 5-HT2B receptor. So this is, you know, an unknown liability uh, in terms of 5-HT2B agonists for um, cardiac valvulopathy, um, which is a pretty serious, um, pretty serious side effect of of 5-HT2B agonism.
0: Hmm. Can you, can you unpack that a little bit for people? So, so you know, I don't think we need to go into 5 HD 2A stuff. Um, mm-hmm. I've had a lot of episodes where we talk about that. That's the psychedelic receptor that's basically needed for most of the classic psychedelic effects of, of things like psilocybin or LSD and so forth. But you're saying there's this other receptor serotonin 2B. And so what do we know about that? And what exactly is going on there?
1: Yeah, 5-HT2B um, is expressed in a number of places, including in the heart. Um, psilocybin in a number of in vitro assays, or psilocin, um, to be more technically correct, uh, actually has you know greater potency at 2B than it does at 2A or 2C, depending on what assay you're using. Um, so it's a, a definite target, a physiologically relevant target of, of psilocin in the body. Um, but it's associated with this sort of hardening of the the valves of the heart Um you know, this cardiac valvulopathy. Uh, And the reason we know this is an issue is because of the the drug Fenfen, which was ultimately pulled from the market a number of years ago. So this was a a combination of fentamine and fenfluramine. It was sold as sort of an anorectic uh, sort of diet agent to to reduce obesity. Um, So you had a a stimulant type drug um, and then fenfluramine was a, a, you know, 2C and and 2B agonist, Um, but it was withdrawn from the market precisely because people who were taking this pill every day were were getting um, valvulopathy as a result. So, um, a, a real world sort of phase four post-marketing surveillance look at, at the effects of, of that sort of agent. Um, and now as a result, 5 H 2 b is largely a, a sort of development liability and anti-target.
0: I see. I see. So 5Hg2b is expressed in the heart in a number of other places. There have been drugs in the past that have been used that have been pulled from the market because people were using them on a daily basis and it was causing heart issues. Can you go into a little bit more detail on what those heart issues were and how, how common was that? Was it you know, was it common enough, but still relatively rare, that they pulled it, or was it was it actually quite common?
1: Uh, that's that's a really good question. I don't know if I have satisfying answers for that. Um, it's obviously not such a major issue. Um, it, I mean, they are repurposing fenfluramine now in Dravet syndrome at a different uh, at a different dose. Um, but yeah, I don't know if I have a, a good answer on exactly how common it was. Just that it's a sort of known risk for uh, compounds that are five http agonists.
0: Yeah, but at the very least, it was common enough that they they actually pulled that oh, yeah. drug in the market.
1: Yeah, it could be picked up in in post marketing surveillance, and and it was substantial enough that the FDA decided to pull it. So, yeah, and
0: so you know what um that that's sort of interesting from the perspective of one of the uh, one of the big trends that you're seeing with respect to psilocybin and other psychedelics, which is uh, microdosing, as you mentioned. So, is the concern there that if you're taking even a microdose of something like psilocybin on a regular basis, whether it's every day or multiple times per week, that there could be the similar that's the similar kind of risk for for heart heart issues?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Valvular disease as a result of of 2B agonism is is definitely one of the um, possibilities for. Psilocybin use at the doses that people are using it. So no one's, no one's actually done the really rigorous study to show sort of whether it is likely to be physiologically relevant. Um, and microdosing, you know, as as many people have probably already discussed, it's it's a pretty vague term anyway. It's not really precisely defined. So the doses that people are using is is not really super well known. Um, but Brian Roth had a, had an interesting tweet on this recently, that uh, half recently, that was a a sort of back of the envelope calculation um, of whether this is or is not likely to be relevant for a number of different psychedelics at the doses that they're taken. And the sort of consensus from that tweet was that um, it's it's a possibility, and it's something that people will should definitely be looking out for. I see. Yeah. So
0: it's it's definitely something that that we should think about. Do we know? Yeah. I mean, beyond the anecdotal reports around the potential benefits of microdosing, you know, people are reporting that it boosts mood, it enhances creativity, and so forth. Has anything actually been demonstrated there for any of the classic psychedelics?
1: Yeah, it's uh, that's why these studies, like the one Vince is doing, are so interesting because a lot of it, obviously, it's uh, people have been doing these studies of sort of increased rigor in and attempt to get as close to, you know, the placebo controlled. Um, trial, uh, that blinded trial that we, we consider the gold standard for clinical trials at this point. And this has involved some pre- previous studies where people have looked at um, self-blinding, you know, sending participants who obtain their own illicit drugs, um, capsules that are coded in various ways so they can self-blind and, and microdose and try to do it that way. Uh, but that doesn't really get around the issue that, um, y- you know, you're still typically if, if people are bringing their own substances to these trials, you're talking about, you um, you know, drugs of unknown provenance. And so Mm -hmm. you don't actually know what the dose of psilocybin in in mushrooms is. You don't actually know how much LSD is on the the piece of blotter that you're cutting up and putting into this, um, this capsule. So no matter how, how well you do those studies, unless you're using sort of pharmaceutical grade material in a, in a sensible way, um, it's very hard to know what the effects are, but certainly there's, there's a huge amount of community support and anecdotal support for microdosing, having positive benefits on mood, creativity, all of these things, Um, yeah, but I think without, without doing the proper blinded studies, it's, it's very hard to know how much of that is placebo and, and how much of that is drug effects. So, uh, Vince's study is a super good one for that reason, because they are using GMP, psilocybin, five milligrams uh, per dose. I think they're dosing three times a week. Um, so, you know, and it's a reasonably large study, a well-powered study. So, you'll be able to see if there are sort of real effects there on, on depression.
0: I see. So they're calling five milligrams a microdose. How does that compare to like what they use in some of the the big studies that Hopkins and others have done with the the full dose of psilocybin?
1: Right. Yeah. So the the, the standard dose for psychedelic assisted psychotherapy is is usually twenty five milligrams, which um, I believe is sort of equivalent to you know what what you might term a, a heroic, what Sam Harris would term a heroic dose of of psilocybin cubensis containing uh, psilocybin cubensis. Um, so around five grams or so of that, I think, which is you know. Pretty pretty hefty. I'm I'm led to believe that's a a full blown mystical experience, possibly with quite a bit of ego dissolution.
0: Interesting. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see the results of that. So the the other thing that you mentioned was developing um, psychedelic inspired drugs or derivatives that. Are still psychedelic, but they have a shorter duration of action. And one of the obvious um, reasons for for doing something like that, that that you mentioned is is the commercial side. You know, these sessions when when you take these these heroic doses of psilocybin, you know, it requires monitoring for you know several hours because the experience is going to last that long. Um, you know, you usually have a couple professionals on in the room with the person and it's just, it's very time consuming and laborious, especially when you think about scaling that up to potentially millions of people. So a shorter duration of action makes sense there. And it starts to get into questions of the experience itself and the, the duration and the intensity of the experience and whether or not mm. those, those ex- subjective experiences are actually part of the therapeutic efficacy that's been seen so far. So how do you start to think about that?
1: Yeah, that's it's a super interesting question. I mean, one of the coolest things about this space right now is that there are so many of these unanswered questions. There's truly just like an endless list of, of really interesting topics to explore. So there's, there's no consensus right now um, around whether the full psychedelic experience is necessary for therapeutic effects in, in at least some of the conditions that have been explored. Uh, it seems like having a you know what's termed a sort of quote unquote mystical type experience does correlate. With uh, therapeutic benefit in a number of different indications, especially sort of end of life anxiety and depression, um, but but no one's done the the other control study that would be needed there, right? Which is um, lower doses of psychedelics dosed in various ways. So that's sort of the work that's that's happening right now.
0: I see. Interesting. Um, and you know, give us a sense for how you know. So depression is one of the things where psychedelics have been most studied so far, and there's clearly a, a very big need for new. Treatment protocols and new drugs in the realm of depression for a number of reasons. Can can you start to give people just a general sense for how big and how burdensome the problem of depression is?
1: Oh yeah, I mean it's it's one of the largest um, one of the largest sort of disease burdens in the world right now. And we know this is we know this is only increased um, since since COVID for sure. That's had a massive compounding effect on this issue. So um, I, I think the stat we talk about is that you know about one in eight Australians are on. Um, antidepressants um, and yeah I, I think you know that the, the state sorry let, let me step back so the the steps that the stats that the people will typically talk about um, are you know on the orders of hundreds of millions of people suffering depression globally mm-hmm. um, and and you see this both in sort of diagnoses and other statistics but also in the rates of, of prescriptions of antidepressants so um by some measures, prescriptions across large parts of the world have increased sort of two or three hundred percent since the beginning of of COVID nineteen, wow. um, and yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy. Depending on what stats you look at, obviously we don't have perfect reporting, um, and antidepressants are not really that effective compared to placebo when you look at, at, at the clinical trials that are being done. So this is clearly an area that's um, you know ripe for for some huge innovation. I think that's why people are so excited about the promise of psychedelics here.
0: Can you can you? I want to step back to, to something you just said. You, you mentioned that at least some antidepressants don't seem to do better than placebo. When you look at some recent clinical trials, can, can you unpack that for yeah. us? Because I know that there's a lot of sort of debate and confusion out there about how good like SSRIs actually are.
1: Yeah, yeah. Super interesting class of drugs. I mean, you know, they were developed, brought to market in the 90s. We haven't really had any innovation in in neuropsychiatry around affective disorders since then. Um, but the main classes of antidepressants that are used are sort of your historical tricyclic antidepressants. These are pretty, um, pretty dirty drugs that hit a lot of different targets and do a lot of different things. And they're, they're widely used in neuropsychiatry for a number of indications, including depression. Um, SSRIs were thought to be You know, these are things that that inhibit the reuptake of serotonin. So, the idea that the hypothesis there was that increased serotonin, um, you know, the synaptic junction would be positive and and produce um, mood enhancing effects. Um, But that mechanism's not entirely correct because you should see those sorts of effects quite rapidly after taking antidepressants, uh, SSRIs. uh, And we know there's actually a latency in terms of. uh, onset of, of benefit therapeutic benefit um so yeah there's are unusual class of drugs we still don't understand the mechanism of action entirely um they definitely don't work for everyone uh and the the benefits uh in some studies are only about 20 percent better than placebo and, and for that 20 percent benefit in some patients you obviously have a huge number of side effects so um, the ones that come up are, are sort of it, it's sort of described by some patients as like just a, a normalizing of, of state so you know Um, sort of lower lows, but also lower highs. Sorry, higher lows, but but also lower highs. So Mm. um, people describe frequently loss of libido, um, loss of enjoyment of of food and other things. Um, And some of those effects can persist. So the loss of libido, for example, which is a pretty big one for a number of people, um, that that can persist even after you stop taking the drug, um, which is is quite problematic. Uh, You've got weight gain and other things as well. So it's definitely not, they're they're not a risk-free class of drug for sure. Yeah,
0: and you know, you hear that a lot when you talk to people, and it's also been documented in the literature that you know, to put it informally, when people take SSRIs, they typically describe some kind of like emotional flattening. So yeah, yeah flattening, that's it. Yeah, they're not. May, yeah, maybe they do feel better as a not as they're not as depressed anymore, or not as prone to feeling as sad when sad things happen. But that's also true on the other end of the valence spectrum that that the things yep. that they enjoy most in life also also get reduced in their magnitude.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right.
0: And you know, one of the things that's super interesting that I think you just hinted at is the question of the chronic use of SSRIs because not only are many, many millions of people on SSRIs, many of them have been on them for years or even decades at a time and and that's pretty much commonplace at this point in in many different countries. You you mentioned the sexual dysfunction thing. So that's an acute effect. People have often lower libido on SSRIs, but you mentioned that can actually persist even after they stop taking the drug. Can you Mm -hmm. unpack that for us and maybe talk about anything else that you know? Because I know very little about this in terms of Mm -hmm. uh, what the potential chronic negative effects could be.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I haven't looked at the, the statistics on on loss of libido and uh, and sexual dysfunction, but it's yeah, it's it's reported definitely. There's literature out there um, around this sort of almost permanent uh, anecdotal support too. This sort of almost permanent um, modification of of sexual drive, which which is problematic for a drug that you stop taking. You know, if you're still having those kinds of effects. Um, the the other one that I wasn't so aware of that I've learned about speaking to a friend recently um, is that for some classes of SSRIs. There can be pretty serious withdrawal effects as well, which is not something we really think about typically, mm. I would say, for this class of drugs. Um, and so this person was actually um, trying to reduce her dose slowly of an SSRI in order to change medicines um, and was getting sort of, you know, elect- electric zaps, as she described it, electric zaps in the brain, which is – and I, I looked it up and it's, it's a known side effect for some classes of SSRIs is this, this feeling of like um, – very unusual. Like electric zaps is the only way people seem to really describe it, but this sort of zapping effect in in hmm. your brain is what it feels like, which sounds quite unpleasant.
0: Interesting, interesting. Yeah, and I, my understanding is we know that there are some of these chronic effects, but there hasn't been a lot of study of this, um, in part because it's difficult because you got to follow people for so long to track it, and because there's a natural uh, there's naturally not a, a strong incentive for for the, the drug developers to go and look for that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that, that's right. I think unless you're seeing something like, you know, like valvulopathy with with fenfen, unless you're seeing something that's really, um, you know, physiologically sort of identifiable and, and happening at a decent rate, it's it's very hard to to reveal some of these effects. But I mean, SSRI is you know, surely one of the most overly prescribed classes of drugs that are that we're sort of using widely these days. So um, yeah, I think we'll see increasing amounts of data around some of the the sort of long term negative impacts of of that class.
0: Mm-hmm. And you know, as you said, those were. Those were basically the, the current, the latest generation of widely used antidepressants. They sort of came on the scene in the 90s, I think in the early 90s, maybe starting in the late 80s or something. And there hasn't been a lot of development since then until, you know, unless you count the current sort of psychedelic renaissance that's going on. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that there was kind of that stagnation in drug development with respect to depression and related psychiatric conditions?
1: Yeah, just because it's it's just so hard. It's, it's a mm-hmm. super challenging area of drug development. So, if you look at um, neuropsychiatry and sort of neurology generally, all of the drugs that we use widely were sort of discovered in phenotypic screens back in the day. So, so looking at effects in mice is sort of a one of the first sort of gating um, decision points that you might use in, in progressing a drug. Um, and yeah, it's an area of medicine that's not really amenable to the sort of more modern target-based approaches. So following the, the genomic revolution, people have moved to, to very much target-based drug discovery, high throughput screens, identify a new hit, you know, select a lead, optimize it, um, and hope that, that engagement of this single target has an effect, has a disease-modifying effect. That, that works super well for some areas of disease. It's, um, you know, it's been very successful in some types of uh, cancer, for example, where you target particular enzymes or proteins. Um, it doesn't work so well for neuropsychiatry just because the brain is so complex and, and we know that there's a, um, you know, a, a whole bunch of activity going on in a, in a very complex way at a sort of systems level that, you know, engaging any single target there typically doesn't produce, you know, a, a desirable sort of therapeutic outcome. So it's just a super challenging area of drug dev. Um, a lot of money's been spent on um, various hypotheses in Alzheimer's disease, and that that hasn't really borne fruit. Um, a huge amount of money's been been expended there, and as a result, I think the larger pharma companies have sort of pulled back on their their central nervous system programs. They've sort of divested themselves of doing this this really challenging drug dev in house.
0: Interesting. And what I mean, so since since you've got the scientific background, but you're also in the in the biotech in the business space for. Psychedelic medicine. What do you think, in, in some ways, this almost seemed to come out of nowhere? I mean, I know that, you know, Roland Griffiths and the Hopkins mm-hmm. studies that, you know, that was going on, I don't know, 2010, 11 ish, maybe. And there was some, some buildup of excitement there, but it was sort of contained and it still didn't really come to the fore for a while. Then all of a sudden, just in the past few wow. years, you've had this explosion. Is there anything that you can identify as a kind of catalyst for that?
1: Yeah. There's, there's a, I've given this a lot of thought. It's, it, You're right. It's super interesting. Like this, uh, I remember I applied after my PhD. I applied for a Fulbright, a Fulbright scholarship to go work with Richard Glennon, who was doing some sort of stimulant and psychedelics chemistry. I think at that time, he was one of maybe three people in the world I could identify who was doing psychedelics chemistry. And he was at the end of his career. So, you had him, Dave Nichols, maybe a couple of other people. Um and there wasn't much happening. You know, I've met some people in, in sort of Shulgin's network, Paul Daly and others who are now associated with ASRI. And, and, and you know, there, there were these small numbers of, of groups doing interesting things. And then I think it's probably around, you know, the time, I think there's a few different sort of effects in, in popular consciousness. And that's probably Michael Pollan. You know, people refer to the Pollan mm. effect when, when How to Change Your Mind was published, making the more, uh, making this whole sort of area more mainstream. A uh, bit of the Joe Rogan effect because his podcast also featured psychedelics pretty prominently. It has a pretty large uh, number of listeners, so I think it was just sort of yeah, this this interesting um, you know confluence of of people talking about it, people with sort of loud voices online talking about it, all at the same time, um, and as a result, you know, other people have become interested. If you speak to sort of investors and, and people in uh, in drug debt working in this space almost everyone has been touched sort of directly or indirectly by depression or suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a lot of sort of personal drive for, I think people, you know, it's, it's sort of gained momentum and it's it's reached this sort of snowball level where now there's just um, too much money flowing into the space because so many people are interested in the promise of this area.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you're making interesting points. So, you know, you had, uh, you know, sort of a, a psychedelic dark ages for literally decades, you know, going yeah. back to uh, the sixties up until, you know, maybe the mid 2010s or something, you had a few people doing research on psychedelics. You had sort of Roland Griffith, Griffiths group at Hopkins that did some of the initial really exciting human clinical stuff for psilocybin. You sort of had you know a, a slow drip of these things coming out at the time. And then you had, as you mentioned, these cultural factors. You had the Michael Pollan effect. You had Joe Rogan becoming super popular and talking about DMT and mushrooms on his <laughs> podcast. And then you know the other piece there that you mentioned is just how prevalent depression and things like this are and so the cultural amplification through through those channels together with how many people are touched by these things directly or indirectly seem to somehow you know shine a light on some of that emerging research that was being done at Hopkins and elsewhere now and now we now we almost have the opposite problem where there's this explosive this sort of explosive influx of funding and, and presumably a lot of it won't go anywhere but it's it's better that we have it than, than we don't
1: yeah, I'd agree. I think uh, there's so much interesting work to be done with psychedelics. I think there's still a lot we don't know. One of the sort of unintended benefits of having this, this sort of psychedelic dark ages um, that, that you'd be well aware of, Nick, with your, your background is that we get to put all of the cool tools from neuroscience um, to work in these areas. So, you've got like sort of Robin Carhart Harris doing all this interesting work with psilocybin and brain imaging. Um, we're using some very modern uh, sort of molecular biology tools in neuroscience now to study exactly how, you know, ketamine is having the, the effects that it's having as a rapid anti- antidepressant. So, um, yeah, unintended benefit of, of the psychotic yeah. dark ages for sure. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I mean, I've had a few guests on who are neuroscientists at different levels of resolution, You know, human brain imaging, all the way down to cellular new neurophysiology and you know, molecular molecular, and crystal structure stuff, Brian Roth, for example. Mm-hmm. And so you really have all of the, the horsepower of modern neurotechnology as it's used in, in labs all over the world, really coming to this in full force right now. There's people really dissecting some of these things at every level of analysis, it seems.
1: Yeah, it's, it, it's super exciting, I think. Um, it, it, I can't believe how much is going on. You know, there's probably by some counts like more than 100 companies working on preclinical and clinical development in this space. You've now got, you've got whole centers, you know, Tim Ferriss funding um, a media center for psychedelics. You've just got like a, a huge amount of really exciting stuff happening um, in, in the private world and, in, and at academic institutions as well, you know, world world leading institutions. So yeah, super exciting time for psychedelic science.
0: Yeah, one of the, um, one of the, one Subclass of psychedelics that I think is super interesting because it it speaks to some of the uh, commercial and clinical needs are DMT and DMT analogs. So we've already Mm -hmm. talked about you know the interest in having versions of psilocybin or other drugs that don't act for six hours or ten hours that act for a shorter duration of time. But it's also interesting that we have existing psychedelics that only last for a few minutes but give you a full blown Mm -hmm. psychedelic experience and have at least some hints that they might have some therapeutic benefit for things like depression as well. So mm. have you thought much about DMT and DMT analogs and can you tell people what's maybe going on there?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So all, all the thing to appreciate about all of these psychedelics is they're all quite different, you know, that they, they have similarities, but they also have very important differences. Um, psilocybin clearly has clinically demonstrable effects in depression. That's been shown details of the mechanism and the sort of nature of the, the subjective effects um, that are required for that is, is not entirely clear-cut. With DMT, that's sort of a newer area of study, but I believe there are groups looking at a DMT and 5-methoxy-DMT, mm-hmm. um, both both of which are typically vaporized for, for inhalation. They have a very rapid onset of effect, very short duration of action, very, very intense experiences. Uh, and there's sort of some debate in, in the community about um, whether that sort of rate of onset and the intensity of those experiences will actually be clinically useful. You've got sort of camps of people who suggest that um, the sort of slow onset of action peaking to, you know, um, really intense experience and, and then sort of fading away is necessary for people to sort of consolidate their, their experience and, and use it in an integrated way. Um, but obviously, that's not really possible with DMT and 5-methoxy-DMT. It's sort of like a, you know, a rocket to another dimension. So, you don't really get that time to um, process what's going on, but, but people are certainly looking at it. So So, we'll have data from those trials as well.
0: So, how did you actually? Can you tell, talk a little bit more about the story for how, from, for how you went from uh, your academic life as a postdoc into a startup founder? Because that's not so, it's certainly not unheard of, but it's certainly not the main track people go down. And I know that there's a lot of probably PhD students and postdocs out there that would be interested in hearing how that happened.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I was, as I've been in, in most parts of my career, I was just really fortunate to, to meet my co-founder, Josh Isman. Um, so, so the short answer is I'd, I'd moved back to Australia in, in 2018 for this um, recruitment for this philanthropic cannabinoid drug discovery effort. We've done a lot of really good work there trying to develop new treatments for epilepsy. Um, I, a lot of my work has focused on neuropsychiatry or neurology, so diseases of the brain generally. Um, I've done quite a bit of natural product optimization, you know, looking for new treatments that improve on, on what nature's provided. Uh, but after working for this, uh, for the Lambert initiative for a number of years.
0: Hold on, Sam, I lost you.
1: Um, Sorry, I think we just dropped out there for a second.
0: Yeah, so you were at Lambert for a number of years and and then we dropped out.
1: Yeah, sorry about that. I'm just gonna make sure I haven't got anything running here. I think I do. Um, yeah, so so I was at the Lambert Initiative for, um, for a number of years, had done a lot of good work there. I think a lot of the, the kind of really interesting work in the cannabis space has sort of already been completed. Um, obviously, that's sort of a developed field of medicine now uh, for a number of patients around the world. Um, and then sort of right as I was thinking about what to do next, I was looking at a number of options uh, overseas back in the Bay because I love living there um, and working there. So many just so many exciting scientists doing such cool stuff. Um, and then I, I lost a friend to suicide um, at the start of last year so um, yeah it was pretty pretty shocking um, it's the fourth friend that I've lost to suicide since I was 15 years old i have been following the clinical trials in psychedelics I've, I've always been interested in this area um, right around the time that it happened I, I met Josh he's a you know this amazing sort of repeat founder with a tech background he's a big um, you know he can do effective altruism. He's a, a, a angel investor in um, a number of biotech companies himself that are focused on sort of human benefit. Um, and yeah, he, he's a New Yorker, although he's been living here for a number of years. And I, you know, we just kind of hit it off. Like I really loved his sort of drive and, and hustle. Um, and you know, he's he's just a, a super honest, um, straight shooter. So we 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 got talking about what we could do in this space for depression. What what sort of a biotech company in Australia? Um, might focus on in terms of bringing these these new treatments to market, you know, especially to uh, patients who are not going to have access to potentially the very costly um, psilocybin clinics that will be rolled out.
0: So you're the CEO of Silo, correct?
1: Uh, I'm we're co-founders, and I'm I'm CSO is my formal title, but I see um, yeah, yeah. Josh is the CEO.
0: Okay, and what uh, I mean, what has that been like so far? Being you know being an, an executive at a biotech company, <laughs> and how and do you feel like you were? You know, even though when you you know go to graduate school and you do your postdoc you're not being explicitly trained for that purpose, do you feel yeah. like there was something in your training that set you up to do something like this well?
1: Yeah the, I, I think living in the bay and then being you know living in Palo Alto, going to Stanford like it, it definitely sort of changes your perspective on things and the funniest thing about all of this is when I went to Stanford I just wanted to do a postdoc find an academic position somewhere and, and just be a professor and, and study really interesting science for the rest of my life. And then in the Bay, you, you just meet so many people who are doing such cool stuff outside the academic sphere. There's, you know, Everyone's a founder. You sit down at a bar in Palo Alto and get talking to a guy who's, um, you know, designing rockets to mine rare minerals from asteroids and things, you know, and everyone's just doing the, the craziest stuff. <laughs> um, so by the time I was wrapping up at Stanford, um, I, I was pretty set on like getting involved in a startup somehow, like doing something uh, a little bit more entrepreneurial. Then I moved back to Australia. There's there's not as much going on here. It's a smaller community for sure. Um, but yeah, in, in my mind, I, I took this academic position at a, a philanthropic initiative. And, you know, the whole time I was really just thinking about how I, I really would just want to start something else in biotech, move back to the Bay or start something in Australia. Um, so I think that, that experience at Stanford, um, those years, it sort of really, really changed my mind on what my career might look like.
0: Yeah, I think one of the things... Um... One of the things that translated very well for me when I went from academia to the world of startups is just the ability to tell a story. So, you know, I spend essentially everything you're doing when you're doing academic science is you're, you're just constantly preparing a story to tell people. And you, you practice a lot um, telling that story verbally and, and visually and with numbers and without numbers. And so it just sort of strengthens that muscle in you when you go through the gauntlet of academia. Did did that? Do you feel like that helped you when it came time to do things like raising money for a startup?
1: Oh yeah, I think one of these things that's kind of really disheartening to see is you know you work with all these incredible postdocs who feel quite trapped by the academic job market, um, and they really think they have this niche specialized set of skills. And when you get out into the wider world and start interviewing for jobs outside academia you realize actually you've developed all of these skills that are super useful that most people do not have. <laughs> and, and you just think of them as, as sort of common because they're, they're so um, deeply ingrained. But storytelling is, is for sure one of them. I'd say all good all good academic scientists are good storytellers because you're constantly, uh, constantly pitching a narrative around a scientific discovery that you've made or in a grant, you know, science that you want to do and why it's so important. Like so much of academic science is actually really good storytelling. So I'd say, yeah, you know, academic scientists and then postdocs are very good at this stuff.
0: And so how did you tell us a little bit about how you crafted a story for how, you know, yet another psychedelic startup was <laughs> going to work and differentiate itself from the other ones? How did you how, how did you figure that out for yourself and then how did you communicate that to investors and to other people?
1: Hmm. We had quite a few discussions. It was a pretty evolving um, concept as, as an early company. And we were really just thinking about what we might do in this space, where, where the greatest need is and what we might do. And early on, we were talking about um, using synthetic biology for psychedelics manufacture. Uh, but manufacture is kind of a sole problem from a synthetic chemistry standpoint, at least for the, for the common psychedelics. Um, and then we were thinking about drug dev and, and we'd done a lot of diligence around what others were doing. And I'm, I'm not a huge fan of, uh, of this sort of more commercial play of just making a pro-drug or a formulation just because you can. I don't think that adds much, much benefit usually. Um, so so we decided that we're actually going to have to do some some novel drug development and really sort of continue a lot of the early psychedelic chemistry that um, that had been done by, by Shulgin and others. So, um, yeah, the, the reason we settled on that is that we identified a number of um immediate needs, you know, shorter acting psychedelics are one, obviously they're not going to be suitable. That that whole psychedelic assisted psychotherapy model would not be suitable for absolutely every person. The, the trials even now um, they have a, a number of exclusions they're, they're obviously focusing on uh, particular patient groups but huge numbers of people will be excluded, excluded from that treatment for various reasons. So Um, Then we got thinking about what you might do with um, sub-psychedelic drugs Would this expand access for people who can't have a full psychedelic experience. And then further down the line, the sort of um, neuroplasticity promoting compounds, you know, for for people who aren't interested in any sort of psychoactive effect, but really would love a new, uh, really innovative antidepressant treatment that's completely different from SSRIs. Um, So so that's sort of what we settled on quite early on. Um, It was always very, very patient-centered and thinking about um, both the, the sort of sliding scale of clinical validity from that that first class of products all the way through to the sort of psychoplastigen class.
0: Mm-hmm. And so given where you guys are at now, what kind of employees do you have at Silo? Where did you find them? And then what do they actually do?
1: <laughs> um, yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So early on for the longest time, it was just Josh and I, um, we were kind of doing everything together. Um, you know, we, we were sort of both co-CEOs and, and CSOs and doing just every part of the business. Um, we were doing a lot of the work in a decentralized way, remotely with, with partner CROs in the US and China and elsewhere. And that's, that's a model that I'm pretty familiar with. It's pretty common for small biotechs just to outsource components of the work. Um, so doing a lot of the admin and intellectual work in Australia and then outsourcing other parts. Um, it's Very recently, um, we switched to a, a co-location at UNSW in, in January. So that's a university here in Sydney. Um, they've been phenomenal to work with. So we essentially sublet space from them. They they have no stake in, in our IP. Um, we sublet space from them, but we get to interact with the academic community, and they get to you know um, send interns and things our way. People who want to have exposure to sort of more um, sort of commercial work or, or startup culture. Um, so yeah, it's it's been super good so far. Um, we have now about nine employees. Some of these are fractional. Some of them are remote, but um, the the core team is based at UNSW. It's it's myself and Josh. We've recruited a really phenomenal medicinal chemist, Will Jorgensen. So he's a, um, a chemist who did a lot of the foundational chemistry for a company here called Canoxys Therapeutics. So um, they're looking at sort of oxytocin, um, oxytocin modifying drugs, uh, as well as drugs for opioid use disorder. So they're actually taking a, one of their assets, KNX100, into the clinic at the moment in a big NIDA-funded study, which is super cool. Um, so he's, he's a phenomenal chemist. He brings a huge amount of knowledge about the sort of bench to bedside translational aspects. Um, we've also recruited Dr. Jin Tan. So he's a a computational chemist um, from the University of Sydney, who's basically wrote the the training manual for Mosaic, which is one of the bits of molecular modeling software that we're using. Um, And then on our pharmacology team, we've got um, Laura Jacobson and and Danny Hoyer. So they're both academics in in Melbourne. Um, They've also spent a lot of time at Nevada, so they really get drug dev. Um, Laura's heading up our sort of behavioral pharmacology and Danny's heading up molecular pharmacology. Uh, Danny, you'll see Danny's name on a lot of the old papers around psychedelic activity and, and serotonin signaling. He's, he's a real OG in this field. Um, and, and he's pointed out to us when we were first sort of recruiting him that his grandfather actually worked at Sandoz with Albert Hoffman when LSD was discovered. So he's definitely mm-hmm. been in this field for a long time. Um, we've got uh, Dr. Dilara Pacheci doing a lot of our media and comms, and, and she's really phenomenal at, at all the psychedelic science outreach. Uh, and that's, that's kind of most of the team right there.
0: I see. So at the core of it, you've got, you've got synthetic chemists, You've got on the science side, at least you've got synthetic chemists, you've got computational chemists, and you've got pharmacologists. So you're making drugs, you're modeling their potential effects probably to uh, streamline and and think about what you might want to go into the wet lab and do. And then you've got the pharmacology folks probably actually testing what these drugs are doing at various receptors and seeing whether or not they're stimulating 5-HT2B or 2A or, or whatever.
1: Yeah, that's exactly it. So, the the pharmacology team, the reason they're they're sort of um, remotely located is because they're guiding a lot of our uh, compound selection and optimization decisions. So, um, we're still doing – we're largely a chemistry company. So, um, there's there's a huge amount of benefit in uh, getting your hands dirty with chemistry and learning sort of the details of these molecules, you know, how how they uh, actually sort of function. Uh, So, we're doing a lot of that in-house in terms of, um, you know, quality control around manufacture and, and thinking about designing these things. But we're doing all the pharmacology um, with various partners, just because it makes it makes the most sense from a commercial perspective. So, uh, in order to set up our own in-house screening for our whole pipeline, it, it wouldn't be very cost effective. Um, certainly not this year, and probably not till we we sort of double in size.
0: I see. And then, do you? I mean, are you aiming to get to the point where you guys yourselves will be doing clinical work?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's that's the plan. So we're we're fundraising at the moment, and the the plan for that raise is to develop. Um, at least one of these assets uh, through IND enabling studies and, and get it ready for, um, for phase one in the clinic. So uh, the, the sort of view we take of it is that, you know, the, the most direct path to market is for shorter acting psychedelics to be rolled out through clinic networks. Um, I think clinical evidence will emerge one way or the other for sub-psychedelic drugs of sort of that product family too that I mentioned and for psychoplastogens, it's sort of only that those effects have only been demonstrated to the animal level. So, so some clinical work still needs to be done there. But our view is we'll have a, a number of really optimized candidates that are ready to be deployed in sort of any clinical indication across these sort of three classes. Uh, but our plan is to take one of those probably from product family one to, to the clinic ourselves.
0: Mm-hmm. And are you got do you guys measure at all at silo um, any plasticity inducing effects that might mm-hmm. happen downstream of you know receptor activation? Are you guys looking for that type of thing?
1: Yeah, yeah, we are. So so one of the best things about doing science in Australia is we we have one of the world's most generous R&D tax credits, which uh, Mm. a lot of people are not aware of. So about 43%, 43 43.5% of every dollar you spend on R&D here is is rebated at the end of the tax year, um, which is is June for us here, mid-year. And we're doing some work with um, the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Org, CSIRO. So they're a big uh, government science organization here, probably the largest. They partner with a lot of um, different commercial partners, you know, biotech startups and things. Uh, and we got uh, we were involved uh, applicants for the uh, something here called the Kickstart program, which is a pretty amazing program um, rolled out by CSRO where they'll provide um, matched funding. So there's a, a voucher system for matched funding. We contribute the other part of that funding and we get half of, of our contribution back as an R&D tax credit. So effectively, we're getting, you know, four times as much research done for every dollar spent, that we would probably anywhere else. So, wow. uh, with with cyro we're looking at um, neuroplasticity. So they're setting up a, a bespoke assay for us using cortical neurons, and we're going to screen our entire library to to see their effects on um, what are typically thought of as sort of positive changes in in neuron morphology and connectivity.
0: Yeah, and can you can you unpack that a little bit for people? I mean, I think a lot of my listeners will be aware, but what are some of the what are some of the more general statements we can make about what's been observed so far in the literature about mm. the uh, kinds of effects on neuroplasticity that tryptamines and other classic psychedelics mm. tend to have?
1: Yeah, so a lot of this work's been done, um, certainly in, in in vitro cell cultures, um, some of it to the the animal level um, with microscopy. Um, but the general idea here is that you know the, the brain is a very complex system of you know trillions of neuronal connections things are constantly being pruned and reconnected. And and this is how we, you know, do everything from sort of store memories to, um, you know, develop disease or, um, or treat disease. So, the idea with, with the neuroplasticity-inducing effects of psychedelics, and this is common to um, some sort of ibogaine analogs, uh, ketamine, classical psychedelics like psilocybin. Um, but the idea is that these drugs, even when you know following sort of acute exposure, lead to um, sort of increased neuronal branching, increased connectivity between neurons, uh, things like neurite outgrowth um, and sort of axonal budding. So the, the idea here is that uh, when these drugs are administered, we can show… That these sorts of effects occur in neuronal cultures, and that those effects typically correlate with sort of improved profiles in animals in terms of a, a depressive type phenotype and, and recovery from that. So, yeah, no, no one's demonstrated that these. These will be useful in the clinic, I guess, with the exception of ketamine, where you know people are. spravado, for example, has been approved as a, a rapid-acting antidepressant, um, although the mechanism is not entirely clear. Uh, neuroplasticity probably plays a role.
0: Yeah. And, and it's important too. I think it connects to the idea that, um, you know, you can, you can give some of these drugs and some of the trials they don't psilocybin, you know, part of part of what makes the result so exciting is you only give the drug once or twice or maybe three times. You have the acute effects, the psychedelic experience, but then there's presumably inside the brains of a living person, this sort of window in which neuroplasticity has been changed in some way. And so now you've got this therapeutic window of opportunity in which something like psychotherapy can be extra efficacious, even though you're not chronically taking the drug.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, this is, this is the whole sort of sub-psychedelic dosing idea. It's that, um, you know, you, you get these positive changes that last for some period after that acute treatment. I mean, obviously, with the psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, um, it's actually like a really terrible model for pharma in some ways because this is the opposite of an SSRI that you take every day. If you look at the data from um, groups like Compass Pathways uh, in their, their large sort of phase two studies with psilocybin, people are getting sort of immediate effects the following day in terms of uh, depression scores. And and what's really interesting, um, if if you're watching this space, is that a lot of those effects are sustained. Like three months out, a number Mm -hmm. of people in those studies are still having um, very positive effects in terms of reduced depression score, uh, you know, months and months after they've had this this sort of catalytic experience. So, uh, it's a super interesting model because, you know, that suggests that for different Presumably different patients will respond differently, but you might be able to go to a, a you know a psilocybin clinic and, and have a session sort of one to four times a year, even with very serious conditions like major depressive disorder or treatment-resistant depression. So yeah, certainly a super interesting, um, super interesting model for um, for a pharmaceutical, you know, for a drug. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. One one person that you mentioned a couple of times as we've been speaking was Shulgin. Did did you ever get a chance to meet him?
1: Uh, it's, it's a very sad story. It was my my life dream to meet Shulgin at one point. I, I moved to the Bay in 2014. Um, he actually died not long after that. So I um, I ended up going to his wake, which was amazing. Met a bunch of the MAPS people there. And yeah, it was just, just in Berkeley at a, a, a huge center there. Kind of the who's who of, of the psychedelic community in the Bay and beyond was there. Um, super interesting and then didn't really think much more about it afterwards uh, I was doing work with a guy named Roy Girona at UCSF uh, and he, he told me he was looking for deuterated tryptamine analogs for um, analytical tox work um, and, and he asked if I knew anyone uh, in the Bay Area and you know if, if it was possible for me maybe to synthesize some of these and I explained it probably wasn't and he said oh you should reach out to Paul Daly um, Paul has I think he's got this archive of deuterated tryptamines he used to work with Nick Coatsy and, and others and I was like okay I'll, I'll give him a call um, he invited me out to lunch um, at the farm, as he called it, and I didn't really put the pieces together until I got there and saw, you know, one one Shulgin road on the side. Um, but essentially, Paul runs the Alexander Shulgin Research Institute, does a lot of archival. So I got to go out and have lunch with him and, and Anne Shulgin and um, and Tanya Manning, which was super cool. Definitely one of the sort of life highlights for me, uh, hanging out with Anne got a little cheeky photo taken at the end because I just couldn't resist. And, and instead of instead of saying cheese where you usually would at a photo op, she said, 2CB.
0: 2CB. <laughs> yeah, 2CB is interesting. I believe that was you know like one of his favorites, one of Alexander Shulgin's mm. favorites. For those that don't know, can you uh, just give a little brief synopsis over uh, of who he was and, and what he did?
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah, Alexander Shulgin is a, a chemist who worked at Dow for a number of years. Um, he developed a really... Um, really commercially successful uh, pesticide for them called Zectran. Uh, as a result, um, you know, they gave him a pretty long leash, uh, given that he was working at a, a big chemical company. And what he did with that leash was start to systematically look at structure activity relationships around uh, initially mescaline and then other tryptamines and things. Um, And at some point, he was publishing a lot of these studies in in really, you know, uh, reputable journals, Um, a lot of these things, which is pretty wild to to think about to scientists these days, but even in the 70s, there's stuff being published in JMedChem, sorry, Journal of Medicinal Chemistry, which is a very reputable, you know, usually pretty dry academic journal, uh, but a number of reports with like um, self-experimentation with these various new psychedelic molecules that Shulgin and others were designing. So, um, eventually, Dow asked him not to publish with their affiliation on these papers and he decided then to set up a lab at his own home and, and continue this work. So he designed hundreds of different systematic modifications of phenethylamines, which are the class that mescaline and, and 2CB belongs to in terms of psychedelics, uh, and then ergolines and tryptamines. So ergolines are things like LSD and tryptamines are things like, like DMT or psilocybin. So yeah, he, he made hundreds of these molecules. He tested them on himself initially for, for signs of toxicity, you know, sort of sensible, escalating dose manner Uh, and then if they were promising in terms of sort of therapeutic tools he'd actually share them with um, psychiatrists and psychologists and and musician friends and things in the bay so this sort of uh, intellectual um, intellectual circles in the bay who who might have interest in using these things Um, and that was all going super well for him he was an expert witness to the DEA he was one of the leading experts on these sorts of classes of drugs uh, until he decided to publish his biography as as both an autobiography, but also uh, recipes for manufacture and description of effects of these substances, so he published these two volumes, uh, Picow and Ticow, phenethylamines I have known and loved, and tryptamines I have known and loved, um, and probably a lot of people advised him not to do that, but he was a bit of a sort of a bit of a libertarian in in that sense, and he believed that knowledge should be free, and as a result, uh, the DEA took away his his license to work with Schedule One substances. They raided his lab. Uh, he was never convicted of any crime, I don't think, but they shut the lab down over um, some small amount of mercury in um, in the in soil somewhere because it hadn't been properly disposed of. I think that was all that happens.
0: Wow. Yeah. No. He's definitely an interesting character for those who don't know who he is. Just read his Wikipedia page or check out those books. Which you know, everyone that I know who has read them <laughs> o- always cites them as some of the most interesting and influential books they've ever read. Do you remember when you first got a hold of those and, and read those?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I read them as a, I think it was in my late teens or early twenties. So I'd, I'd realized I I'd taught myself a lot of chemistry because that's uh, organic chemistry, especially because that's the language of pharmacology, which is what I was really interested in. I remember getting a copy at a, uh, at a local bookstore here and then finding out that we have some of the strictest censorship uh, laws in the world, apparently. And actually it's, it's illegal to instruct on the manufacture of an illicit drug and <laughs> that these books were, were probably technically illegal and people have had them confiscated at the border level, but um, I, I managed to pick them up at a local bookstore, so clearly it's not a, a law that's enforced uh, all of the time.
0: <laughs> and uh, what uh, they have a very unique structure. Can you talk about that a little bit more?
1: The structure of the books? Yes, yes. Yeah. So, so the first half of each book, Pical is this sort of autobiography of, of Anne and, and Sasha and, and their lives. And the first half of Tikal is sort of just, just really interesting notes um, on, on different things that have happened to Shulgin that relate to his career or to drugs or other things. And then the second half of each book is is really this sort of almost like a scientific manuscript. So it has um, the sort of chemical code and, and structural name for each chemical, a little picture of it. Um, it has the sort of dose and duration method for the synthesis, and then a number of like extended discussion on um, various aspects of the drug. So yeah, it's it, for... What sort of would be considered an academic textbook in some senses? It's it's a super interesting read. Shogun's a great writer. He's very he's a really passionate communicator, um, and it's super interesting to read for sure.
0: So, what do you think? You know, how should we think about the time horizon for the? Clinical development of some of these novel psychedelic and psychedelic derived medicines? Are we going to start seeing these things actually hit the clinic in two or three years, or is it going to be five or 10 years? Like, how should people think about how long this type of stuff takes to do?
1: Yeah, it's not a traditional psychedelic, but MDMA for PTSD, the, the trials that MAPS is running, is looking like it might have an approval timeline that's sort of into next year. Um, which is is pretty interesting. The FDA has already granted um, breakthrough therapy designation, meaning that um, this treatment shows enormous promise over existing treatments for PTSD. Um, The the trials data is is quite good so far. So assuming there are no other issues, um, it's very likely MAPS believes that that the FDA will approve that as a treatment um, by next year. I think psilocybin will probably follow maybe the year after once um, Compass has wrapped up their phase three clinical trials, which they're they're setting up now. Um, And I think they'll probably be first to market With psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy, and and I think that's probably likely to happen in 2024. And that's that's just on the approved -approved, FDA-approved medicines, you know, formal clinical setup uh, end of things. You also have like a huge number of sort of states and and local municipalities uh, enacting various, you know, considering various ballots or enacting various laws that decriminalize um, natural psychedelics at least. So quite a bit going on in Oregon, for example, where they're talking about rolling out. Mushroom clinics of various kinds uh, under this sort of decriminalisation model.
0: Yeah, how do you how do you actually feel about that? Just not not just as like a scientist, but as a person, the question of legalisation versus decriminalisation of these things.
1: Yeah, I, I think we've learned a lot from decriminalization in other parts of the world. You know, every, every country is different. In, in the US, I would say every state is different. Like having having lived and traveled there quite widely, it's it's re- I think of it really as sort of 50 different nations that have sort of all been pushed together because it's, you know, it's a very diverse place. Um, I think full legalization should be done sort of cautiously for a number of things. And we've certainly learned a lot um, from cannabis, even in the US, about where that does and does not work. Um, so I think decriminalization is absolutely sensible. I think most drug issues are, are really... The problems that arise with drug use of any kind are really health issues, not criminal issues. I think decrim makes a lot of sense, um, and I think ultimately, the legalization under the right sort of regulatory framework also makes a lot of sense for these things. And um, I, yeah, I'm a pretty pretty staunch believer in uh, in drug legalization, only because it, it is an inherently risky activity that we can absolutely regulate. You know, we we do we have a lot of other risky activities that people um, partake in, either medically or recreationally. Um, you know I'm, I'm a recreational skydiver. you can get a license to to jump out of a plane. it's it's not a big deal like you you absorb some of the risk there and you consider it and there's training programs in place and people will teach you how to do it as safely as possible. and I think this sort of idea of a you know potentially like a drug license um, yeah. is one way to get around a lot of the problems with with prohibition as it stands.
0: That's interesting. I've never actually thought about that. So instead of thinking of legalization as just being just meaning, just meaning uh, you walk into the store and you can buy, X Y or Z, you would actually obtain a license which would you know potentially require you to take certain courses or be certified yeah. in some way
1: yeah i mean we do this for other medicines already right you get the you get your little um, leaflet that tells you about the risks and benefits of the drug you have a conversation with the doctor there's no reason you couldn't apply that model Um, and we already do it medically there's no reason you couldn't apply that to recreational drug use as well so you know you you want to use ketamine have you used it before how often are you using it you go have a chat with the doctor about its harms and your personal situation you prescribe some small amount of ketamine for your own use um and and if you mess up you know if you end up accidentally overdosing or doing doing something really silly um, you know, maybe you get some demerit points and you're not allowed to use that substance again for a little while or without additional training. It's, it's you know, it's a pretty straightforward model that we already employ in a number of different places and I think could absolutely be sort of, um, you know, enacted in a practical way. Mm-hmm.
0: And, you know, as as a startup founder and as a scientist and as just, just a, a citizen, um, you know, when you look back at the history of these things and you go back to the 50s, 60s, 70s and what happened from then till today, do you think there's any risk that you know, depending on what happens and how people start using these things as they become decriminalized or legalized and things like that, that, you know, despite all of the development we're seeing on the science side and the medicine side, that there could be some kind of backlash and we could go into retrograde. Do you ever worry about that or think about the risk of that?
1: Yeah, I definitely do. Even on the medical front, right? For these for trials that are conducted in in ways that are sort of less than ethical or, or less than rigorous, that that's always a real risk. Um, I, I think you know we've seen we've seen bits of it in in the cannabis space. You know, there are still people who are staunch prohibitionists for cannabis, which is a, a relatively innocuous substance. It, it, yeah, it it doesn't have earth shattering effects in terms of um, you know increasing road fatalities or causing domestic violence or anything else. Certainly not. Certainly less than alcohol, for example, mm-hmm. which is completely legal. So, um, yeah, I, I think there's always a risk because all drug drug use carries um, some risk. Um, I think, yeah, there's absolutely the possibility that uh, you know regulators or um, you know legislators take a sort of dim view of the space if if you get too many people doing the wrong thing. I also think it's it's pretty unlikely. I don't foresee that happening. Most likely, because there are there's a huge minority of people who are already using psychedelics in a legal way um, without much. You know, without much harm. If you look at you know David Nutt's study of um, drug harms considered across a number of factors: harm to self, harm to society, harm to others. Um, you know, psilocybin, for example, rates you know way down at the the lowest end of of harms on that scale in that study. So, yeah, I think it's pretty unlikely.
0: Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I often hear about is that. So when you, when you look at the clinical trials with psilocybin, for example, one of the things that they screen people out for is a history of mental illness, in particular things like schizophrenia or other forms of psychosis. And the fear there is that um, something like a high dose full-blown psychedelic experience could, at least in certain uh, individuals who are predisposed to things like schizophrenia or other forms of mental illness, it could actually precipitate those, those forms of psychosis coming online. And you know, occasionally I'll hear an anecdotal report of someone who knows someone who, you know, <laughs> took too much acid and and went crazy in in whatever way. Um, but I've actually, because I've been asked this so much, and because you know, it seems plausible, right? Given if you've ever had a psychedelic experience or you've ever even heard someone talk about it, it, certainly seems plausible that this type of experience could uh, precipitate some kind of psychotic break, but I've actually had trouble myself finding clear cut (laughs) documentation of that in the literature. So what do you know know about what's actually been documented there and actually demonstrated?
1: A lot of these risks have been massively overblown for various, um, very obvious, uh, you know, propaganda war reasons. So I, I have a good friend from, um, my teen years who actually developed psychosis as a result of cannabis use. And it's likely that he was genetically predisposed to this, um, and And I've known people who've admitted to me that they've used cannabis, psychedelics, all sorts of things. He is the only person I know who's ever had a, a sort of profound psychotic reaction to a psychoactive substance. So the, the stories I've heard, the, the ones that go around, um, you know, you hear of a, a a psych nurse who knew someone in the 60s who tried to peel himself because he thought he was an orange after taking LSD. Or, um, it, you know, these can almost never be verified. There's no evidence that these things have actually happened. The other funny one that used to get thrown around a lot with uh, PCP and, and with LSD and other things was, you know, someone thought they could fly and, and tried to jump off the tall story of a building. Um also probably not verified probably someone who already has some other serious mental illness um but i think it was bill hicks who said you know the the dead comedian who said you know if you think you can fly maybe take off from the ground floor first it's like you know these these aren't very compelling stories and when you dig into them there's not really much evidence for them at all and certainly no sort of clinical confirmation that uh these were the the result of a a drug-induced experience
0: i see what um you know, from a scientist's perspective and from a drug development perspective, what do you think are some of the bigger unanswered questions right now in psychedelic science, broadly speaking, that we will likely learn the answers to in, say, the next two or three years?
1: Oh, that's such a good question. Um, one of the things that I'm very personally fascinated by is this idea of sort of uh, the precise um Molecular pharmacology of agents that are psychedelic versus not psychedelic. So, you can get things that uh, interact with the 2A receptor um, that give you an agonist profile there. So, that, so they activate it. They give you a head twitch response in mice, suggesting they're psychedelic in humans. And then you dose them in a person, and they're absolutely psychedelic. You can get things that are very closely related. So, things like six um, fluoro DET um, diethyltryptamine, which can sort of activate the 2A receptor, or at least interact with it. They can bind to it. They can activate it along some signaling lines, um, but don't really give you a head twitch response and are not psychedelic in, in humans. So this is one of these questions that I'm super interested in is, uh, what is the precise molecular pharmacology of a psychedelic versus non-psychedelic agent? And and I think with all the the work that's been um, thrown into this area by sort of Brian Roth, Alex Klein, a number of other people, um, Dave Olson even, I, I think we're going to have answers to that in the next two or three years. And that's going to you know rapidly expedite uh, a lot of the drug dev we do in this area in terms of both psychedelics and psychoplastogens. Mm-hmm. So
0: for for some of the the major results that are out there with respect to um, psilocybin in particular, and going back to that question of like, how much of the effect um, is actually requiring that subjective experience that comes with taking a classical psychedelic? What's what's at least your gut there for for what you think the answer is going to be? Do you think there's going to be at least some therapeutic Effects that do require that, or do you think that we'll likely start developing drugs that completely that, that allow us to get all of the same therapeutic outcomes we've seen so far, but without any psychedelic effect?
1: I I hope it's the latter, only because the market. Um, for those types of drugs and the, and the need for those types of drugs from people that suffer from depression and who may not be able to take psychedelics is, is absolutely enormous. And I think, you know, neuropsychiatry is um, absolutely ready for a, a new, a fundamentally new mechanism of action in, in depression treatment. So I really hope it's the latter. But um, part of me thinks, based on, on the clinical data and, and speaking to people who participate in some of these trials, that there is something about that profoundly intense psychedelic experience and the sort of um, it, it acting as a sort of catalyst for psychotherapy integration. So, uh, you know, you hear people talk about this quite a lot in some of the old trials that were done um, with smoking cessation, for example. People have a psilocybin experience with therapy and, and they don't describe it's not it's not like a slow learning. It's like this flash of insight that's consolidated in the therapy afterwards. They just give up smoking. They're like, I just took a completely different view of myself as a smoker, you know? It, it I could see it for what it was, and I just I instantly gave it up overnight. Um, and there's quite a few of those sorts of stories, these really profound insights, this sort of objective view of oneself that then lead to um, you know, really dramatic changes in behavior. So I think. The chance that you get those sorts of outcomes from a drug that's not psychedelic, that, that's just inducing neuroplasticity and doing other things, I think that's less likely. So my, my sort of gut instinct at this point is that the sort of sub-psychedelic or non-psychedelic psychoplastogens um, will be effective in some conditions, um, but for these really serious affective disorders, maybe that full-blown sort of psychedelic experience with therapy is is what's needed. Interesting.
0: Have you ever, have you ever tried a psychedelic yourself?
1: Um, I, I have never admitted uh, publicly to trying a psychedelic, but I, I, I can tell you without disclosing which one, because there presumably are some legal ones historically that um, I, I absolutely have tried psychedelics. Yes.
0: Yeah. And so how did that impact you in terms of going in this direction or or just in your life in general?
1: Um, I, I would say so i've tried psilocybin um in in the form of mushrooms in a in a jurisdiction where it was legal um and it had a pretty pretty profound impact on my view of the world uh, my view of myself the sort of interconnectedness of things and i would say um it's really you, you hear this a lot when you ask people about their psychedelic experiences uh, listening to a a recent sam harris podcast the, the paradox of psychedelics um no one no one says they're boring <laughs> you might have a really you might have a really great time you might have a really bad time but absolutely no one is bored by a psychedelic experience. And when you talk to people about this, a lot of people describe it as one of the more profound experiences of their lives. And that, that was certainly my experience, enough that I redirected my career from one area of science into chemistry out of a, a you know, serious fascination with, with the pharmacology of psychedelics. Um, and that, that's a super common story. If you look at the uh, the, the self-reporting in a number of these trials for people who've never tried psychedelics before and do so in a, a clinical context, they say it's like one of the most uh, impactful experiences of their lives, right up there with the death of a parent or the birth of their first child, you know, which is pretty remarkable for a, an alkaloid that is found in some fungi that produce it for reasons we don't understand. It's it's a pretty wild uh, uh pretty wild to even sort of consider that a drug effect. It sort of diminishes it almost. It's, it's so much more profound than that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I think most religious psychedelics are profoundly moved by them.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, this speaks to uh, something that I think is really interesting, which is, you know, if you look across human cultures today and human cultures historically, a very large percentage of human cultures have had some kind of Rite of passage, um, sometimes just once per lifetime, sometimes, you know, at certain times of year, that involved the ingestion of something psychoactive, very oftentimes something psychedelic. And this was not done just to cure someone who had some significant illness. It was seen as part of the normal development of one's life. It was part of the normal trajectory of what it was mm-hmm. to be in that culture and to become you know, become the person you were supposed to become. Do you think there's any place for psychedelics to, in the Western world, um, come back into that, that kind of cultural uh, niche and be something that's not just used as medicine to cure someone who has a problem, but that's used at maybe certain, certain phases of development or certain times of life, even in perfectly healthy individuals.
1: I think that's probably where we'll get to with decriminalization and legalization, and there's certainly plenty of people historically who thought um, that was a valid use of these substances. I, I heard, uh, I think it might have been Hamilton Morris talking about William Leonard Picard, the, the prominent LSD chemist from a number of years ago. Produce more LSD, probably than anyone on the planet. He he didn't think this was for medical purposes at all. He believes these were this is a substance that should only be given to people who are already very healthy to sort of improve wellness and and you know their understanding of the world and their place in it. So certainly a lot of different views on this topic. I, I think. I don't think these are things that that are that should be fully medicalized only. I, I don't think that's the right way to think about them. And we certainly don't for like for cannabis, for example, right? There's there's very few classes of drugs that are psychoactive that we think of as having, you know, sort of only one intended use, uh, medical or otherwise. So yeah, cannabis is another good example, certainly useful medically for a number of people with various pain conditions. Also great for enhancing music, you know, or the taste of food. And I think these are all valid uses of, of these substances.
0: Well, Sam Bannister, we, we've covered a lot. Is there anything else that you want to talk about or leave people with or perhaps reiterate from what we've talked about so far?
1: Um, no, no, nothing comes to mind. Just that um, you know, having, having spoken to a lot of people in this space who, who've lost friends um, as a result of depression, um, I, I hope that we can have a, a big impact in this area soon. So Silo and, and others working in this space, hopefully there are new treatment options um, available as, as soon as 2024.
0: Um, the last thing I'll ask you is just, this is a very exciting and very interesting and very complex area, just the area of psychedelic science in general. There's a lot of great research out there. There's, you know, as with any field, a lot of not so great research out there. There's a lot of good reporting out there in the popular press, and there's a lot of bad reporting. What are some of the places you would point people to, whether they're scientists or non-scientists, if they want to just say up to speed on the general area and, and what's coming out?
1: Oh yeah, there's a lot of really good resources online. Um, obviously, Psychedelic Alpha is is a really great site. Um, I subscribe to a number of um, substacks that are really good, or other newsletters. Um, Zach Haney's one's quite interesting on the in the US focused on the sort of uh, clinical space um, and, and legal space. Uh, but yeah, just just I'd say there's there's no shortage of resources for um, for podcasts for news in the area from Psycholeg Alpha and other uh, other places um, and for the clinical trials that are going on. So yeah, just subscribe to those newsletters. um, Subscribe to SILO's newsletter. We have uh, um, Dil Bacheci rolling out an incredible newsletter um, for us. um, So you can subscribe to that on our website, silo.bio. But yeah, certainly no shortage of, of, of good information out there.
0: All right. Well, Sam Bannister, thank you for your time.
1: Yeah, thanks so much, Nick. It was great speaking with you.